episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We honour their histories, cultures and traditions of storytelling. Hello and welcome to Plated Three Food Memories. I'm your host, Savas Savas. For a quarter of a century, my catering company, Plated, has contributed food experiences for some of Australia's most extravagant and intimate soirees. Food connects us. It connects us to people, to places and to moments in time. These memories shape who we are and what we value. So come and break bread with my guests and I as they share their food memories, revealing far more about themselves than what they've tasted. Our guest in this episode is Dr. Karl Kruzioniski, a man with an answer looking for a question. Dr. Karl is and has been many things, including, but not limited to, a physicist, medical doctor, TV weatherman, labourer and taxi driver. In his earliest days, he designed and built a machine for Fred Hollows to pick up electrical signals from the human retina. I mean, I can't even comprehend how complicated that must have been. However, Dr. Carl is best known as Australia's most important science communicator. He'd like to be known as a storyteller, and he's bloody good at it too. He's written no less than 47 books, and his science hour is the longest-running segment in Triple J's history. I love Dr. Carl because he makes the world feel hopeful, and it's in this hope our own curiosity is ignited in search for the question to the answer. Dr. Carl, what a thrill to be here with you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. You've been a really big part of my life and many people's life, but I remember you back um, listening to Triple J, Maynard's show. I think you would come on on a Thursday or a Friday and you'd give a, a couple of curiosity stories and you saved me from complete despair getting through the HSC oh. examinations. Oh, look, I, I feel um, very happy I was able to do that. I think that the HSC examinations um, have gone away from the true meaning and value of education. So if you look at the word education, E means out, as in exit, and duco ducare means to lead. So the true value of education is besides giving the student a load of data and also knowledge on how to process that data is also to find their talent and lead it out of them. And the HSC doesn't do it. It's just a straight learn and regurgitate exam. So look, I do apologise for being part of the evil patriarchy that forced you to do that vaguely stupid exam. But that time with Maynard, that was a lot of fun. I remember there were a lot of giggles and crazies coming from Maynard himself. Uh, but you were great. Like, you just kept it rolling. And every week I would wait for something new. And there was always something new. But there were several things that would come through. Well, that's because the universe is very large. And the more that we learn, that means we've got a bigger bubble of knowledge. But the volume and surface area of that bubble of knowledge is bigger, which means that where it kisses the unknown is also bigger. So the more we know, the more that we still know that we don't know. How often do you kiss the un unknown? Um, at the moment, I'm working my way through trying to understand what's happening firstly with the claim 
that NASA recorded the sound of a black hole and secondly that we all have a doppelganger. Both of these claims seem to be perhaps a bit over-enthusiastically maybe put there by sub-editors whose job is to make a headline that grabs people as opposed to necessarily being accurate. I saw something on that double ganger thing. It was an artist who created a, a series of work of, of virtual twins, but they weren't really, were they? They were it was something to do with their, what did they find in their DNA? Ah, so firstly there was a Canadian artist who has been building up a series of people around the world who look remarkably similar to each other. This was then followed up by a study coming out of Spain where they looked at um, 16 lookalikes and found that they had similarities in their DNA, which is kind of what you'd expect because the face does show something about the person. Firstly, uh, when I was training as a doctor at the kids' hospital, you go and learn a whole bunch of different faces. And so you can say, oh, yeah, that's a Prada Willie kid. That kid's got um, trisomy 23. And you can recognize the condition of the kid. You can recognize if they've got uh, a certain type of breathing complaint just by their face over a period of a long time has changed them. But then on the other hand, um, you can look at a person's face, and this is a recent study, and accidentally work out what their immune system is saying about certain cells in their immune system called natural killer cells. So natural killer cells are some cells in your immune system that go out and kill things, um, usually invaders, but sometimes your own cells. So a little bit is good, but too much is bad. And in the study, it turned out with a large sample size that women preferred men who, who just by looking at their face and then relating that to their levels of natural killer cells, the faces that they preferred, these people had high levels, these men had high levels of natural killer cells, which meant that they were robust and very good at killing germs and cancers. On the other hand, men preferred women who had a face that correlated with having a low level of natural killer cells because that means that they've got a higher fertility and a lower miscarriage rate. So the, the face does reveal a lot about us and there's so much more to learn. Speaking of so much more to learn, one of your uh, one of your books, your works, um, Dinosaurs Aren't Dead, it got me thinking, can our mm -hmm. memories and our stories, in this case our food memories, can they take on a similar evolution? Um, by evolution, do you mean can they change our DNA? Um, can they change can, can, of the dinosaurs? Like the dinosaurs aren't dead. According to you, dinosaurs are not dead. They're still living as fossils. Birds. Birds. Birds, Birds are dinosaurs. They never died out. Uh, okay. Okay. So does that mean our stories and our memories will morph into something else? Uh, stories always do morph, especially when transmitted by the fragile human memory. And in fact, it turns out it is possible to implant a false memory into one quarter of people, or at least um, university students, if you count them as people. <laughs> and how, how so? Well, um, this study was done at the University of California at Anaheim, which is where Disneyland is. And the study was to get all these students in and in the best uh, tradition of psychology uh, experiments, lie to the students. And they said, okay, we'll give you a hundred bucks for one hour now and a hundred bucks for one hour next year. You've got to commit and fill out this little survey, turn up. And in the survey, what they did 
was get them to answer a bunch of questions, including have you ever been to Disneyland? And they selected only the ones who'd been to Disneyland. And then they brought them in and went through a bit of a charade. Hi, look, thanks for coming in. Uh, we'll give you the 100 bucks at the end of this study. Look, what we're really trying to do is see how your values change. And they continued on with the lie. Oh, look, there's a little bit of a hold up now. Um, and then in an effort to make a happy conversation, said, oh, you, have you been to Disneyland? And they knew what the answer was, which was yes. Yes. And the student said yes. And then they, then they implanted the false memory. They said, did you ever get a cuddle from Daffy Duck when you went to Disneyland and the student said, yes, no, I can't remember. And it didn't matter what else went on. They then said, oh, look, they're ready for you now. And they went in to do this stupid test they didn't even care about. A year later, they call them back. And this time they go through the same shroud. Oh, hi, welcome back. Look, sorry, there's a bit of a delay. Look, have you been to Disneyland? You have a polite conversation? And the students, of course, said yes. And this time they asked them an open-ended question, which was, do you have any memories of Disneyland? And one quarter of them said, I remember getting a cuddle from Daffy Duck, which is wow. impossible because the duck that belongs to Disney is Donald Duck. Uh -huh. Daffy Duck belongs to um, Warner, Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. So when you talk about stories evolving, um, well, with the human memory, they can evolve into anything and you can change. The, <laughs> that's, that's why there's a wonderful um, saying from the Mythbusters, the difference between science and screwing around is that in science you write it down. In screwing around you just rely on your memory. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that whenever there's a full moon, there are more admissions to casualty, the psych ward, more police uh, work, et cetera, and it's all wrong. Well, I'm not going to screw around now. I want to get into your food memories. Thank you so much for being part of this with us. So yep. your first food memory, Carl, yeah. is going to a restaurant in Melbourne with your parents. Yeah. So I think I was about eight or nine or 10. And I remember I was wearing shorts and long socks and shoes and very neatly done and tie um, and a sort of like a top jacket that it came down a little bit like a mini skirt part of the way over my trousers. And we went into this restaurant and I remember I hated eating fish because there was always these stupid bones. And the menu came around and they said, we've got a very, you know, there was somebody taking us out to dinner, to lunch. And there was a fish, we recommend the fish. I said, oh, look, I, 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 I don't like fish because it's got bones in it. And the waiter said, ah, we can guarantee guarantee that in this fish there will be no bones and against my you know reluctance i said okay and then out came this beautiful fish which had, was just wrapped in this incredibly light floating batter that was maybe a centimeter or two away from the body of the fish and it was just so delicious and crunchy and then it was crunchy and then the fish had no bones oh my god the first time in my life that i ever had fish with no bones i was so happy and I remember coming out in the sunlight feeling like a million dollars because it was one level down below street level. You had to go down a set of stairs. We were on the street. Now, in your family, there was mum and dad. Were there any siblings? No, I was the only blessing, if you want to call it that. <laughs> and how did your family come to Australia? Um, well, they ended up uh, going out of war-torn Europe and accidentally uh, ending up in Sweden. Uh, met each other, decided to get together, um, had a little baby, that was me. And then while they were in Sweden, 
uh, both refugees from concentration camps in Europe, um, the Russians began to start making grumbling noises at Finland, which was just right next door to Sweden. And my father had already spent some time in a Russian concentration camp and he didn't enjoy it. And he figured, I'm getting out of here. And so the plan was that they would go down to the dock and there'd be a ship and it'd been all organised and we'd go to America. Hooray! But I'd had my smallpox vaccination and I had a reaction to it on the dock. And then my parents freaked out and decided not to get on a ship. And then the ship went away. And then my fever went away and we're still on the dock. And then another ship pulls in and it's going to Australia. And that's how come I end up growing up in a refugee camp in Australia on the border of New South Wales and Victoria outside of Albury Place called Bonnegilla. And then somehow made your way to Wollongong. Yes. Um, my father was working, doing waterboard work, putting in pipes. And my mother managed to get a job in Sydney as a housekeeper. And eventually we uh, came down to Wollongong, where so many other people did come. And um, my father was able to get a job there on the waterboard. And uh, so we, my mother was not able to get a job because that wasn't allowed in those days. Um, married women weren't allowed to get jobs. And if a woman had a job and got married, she had to resign because she was holding up a uh, married man, a, ma a man from getting a job, which was more important uh, in the thinking of the day. And so we, we, I grew up there in Wollongong, going to um, primary school and high school there, and then eventually university as well, the first time around. So who did the cooking at home? Uh, always my mother, except um, on feast days, um, we'd all get together and make various Polish foods like pierogi. Pierogi, the little dumplings. Little dumplings. I love dumplings. What were your first memories of uh, uh, living in Wollongong in that house there? It was a, it was a little suburban house and the big garden that your father had. Yeah, he had a huge garden out the back, maybe half the um, quarter acre block. And he grew all sorts of things, um, potatoes. It was amazing to realise that he left the potatoes in the ground and when he wanted to get some potatoes to eat, he'd just go out and then dig around in the dirt and pull them out. And they survived really well in the ground. I, I found that kind of astonishing. And we had a little chicken coop out the back uh, where there were chickens. And um, uh, maybe it was say we had rabbits, but bad things happened to the rabbits with the neighbor's dog. So we gave up on that. And um, it was basically my father trying to survive working on the waterboard firstly as a labourer and then later in head office because he was educated and had a bunch of languages um, and so therefore he's involved with um, the personnel department, what they call human resources, hiring people, etc, etc. Um, but to make the money go further, um, he had his own veggie garden and the weird thing was that he was very much anti-communist and yet all of his best mates were commos. What nationality were they? Um, my father was Ukrainian Poland, Polish, depending on where the town was in at in time, because the town was called Lamberg when it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and then Lviv when it was part of Poland, then Lviv when it became part of Ukraine, and the borders will shift again. And my mother lied to me, telling me that she was born in Sweden. Uh, whereas, in fact, she was born in Poland in Łódź, but lying about her past was the only way she could get through the terrible things that had happened to her in the Second World War. In terms of coping with, with the memories of those, 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 those what happened then? 
Um, yeah, different people have got different ways of coping and it worked for her and I have deep sympathy for her now, much more than I did back then. I was very ignorant back then. So you, you said your dad had some a lot of mates who were communist. I, mean, I, would, I would imagine my grandfather and my uncles and my, my father himself had communist leanings. What nationalities were they and where did they come from? Um, vaguely Slavic, Slavonic, so different parts of the world around there that had been Russia in the past or were going to be Russia that had been Germany. But, but around that Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, Russian area. Did, did he ever mix with the Italians and the Greeks and the Macedonians who were also part of the Wollongong Society fabric? That happened only after my mother started running a record shop in Warrawong, which was on the other side of the steelworks from us. And she um, then met deeply with the Italians and had an Italian uh, worker with her in a shop. And then that way we got deeply involved with the Italian society. And that was a, a wonderful thing. A whole new world opening up to me. La Paloma record shop. A record shop? That's quite random. Yeah, well, my parents loved music and it was really interesting because I would work with her in the record shop and it was a whole different culture. So in on one hand, uh, a love of classical music was something that only well-educated uh, Anglos had. But into the record shop, we'd have these Italians coming in just straight out of the steelworks, covered in dirt, faces all dirt with coal dust, and they would say, oh, look, I, 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 I want this version of this opera, but, I, but I, I don't want that one with that singer because I don't like, like him as much as the other singer. And they knew their music backwards. And it was just such a change to find an interest in classical music I mean, amongst people who were not really well educated. It just, as I said, I was very ignorant in those days um, and probably still am and it helped open my eyes a bit. <laughs> was there music around the dinner table? Not a lot. We did manage to get hold of a uh, two-in-one, uh, which was a um, record player and a radio all-in-one, which was very high-tech back in those days. Nobody had anything called a hi-fi unit, and when they did come out, there was only very, very few of them around. So we used to listen to the music. And I remember one time I went with my mother to the record shop, um, you know, as I would do and work with her on the weekends, and somebody wanted to play a Bach... Brandenburg Concerto and for some reason it just resonated with my soul and I took the record home and I played it over and over and over again until my parents got sick and said stop it for a while but <laughs> it was a really you know one telling experience where I just suddenly fell in love with classical music I, I, I can put it down to that day. Fantastic I'd like to move on to your second food memory now this is um, the food that you lived off while you were studying and before, yeah, so um, I end up doing some study, getting a degree in physics, working at the steelworks for a while, um, going to New Guinea, doing research there, picking up a scholarship to get into film, making some of the first MTV videos, becoming a hippie and a roadie for rock and roll bands, including Bo Diddley, um, and then a taxi driver to support myself. And then towards the end of that early time, I then found myself in a squat where you didn't pay any rent in Glebe. Um, and the squats weren't doing particularly well. It was a deliberate policy by the government 
when they wanted to put some roads through an area to buy some houses at a reasonable price and then leave them open, take the doors off and then wait for people to move in and then force the prices down so that the other people left would buy sell off at a lower price. Naughty Department of Main Roads. <laughs> what year was this? Um, early, early mid seventies, right. and the place was called Lindhurst, which and they were trying to get rid of it. A place, uh, a wonderful grand old house in Glebe, and they want to run an expressway straight through it. And so I moved in there, and a few of the other people, uh, with a bit of encouragement, moved out, and I end up uh, in there by myself. Um, and then from that, I gradually worked my way into regular society by getting a job as a scientific officer at Prince Henry Hospital and then dropping out of that and then becoming a full-time student and all the time uh, living in the squad in Glebe. And I, I picked up a habit in the early days, which I kept while I had income working at the hospital and then kept on with that habit while I was a student, of um, my diet being incredibly cheap. So um, as a hippie, I had discovered the beauties of Chinatown and how you could buy rice in 20 kilo bags and soybeans. Oh, my God. Now, rice is one thing, but soybeans have got all the proteins you want, uh, just as good as in meat. And so I fell in love with the concept of the soybean via the pressure cooker. They're just incredibly soft and buttery. And then the other part of my diet, now I've got my protein underway, um, was the vegetables. Now, when I was a cab driver, uh, I used to work at weekends and I'd often uh, take people to or from the fruit markets in Sydney where trucks would come from all over Australia, beginning at about 8 o'clock or so on a Sunday night and going through till about 4 o'clock on a Monday morning. And I'd, I'd often work a late shift. And I remember dropping people in there and then the trucks would come, the contents would be disgorged. People who owned fruit and veg shops would come along, load up their utes and take them out and there was a continual movement. It was just like this incredibly dynamic mini city that most of the citizens never had any idea of. It all happened between when they went to bed and when they woke up in the morning. And I remember on one occasion seeing a rat the size of a medium-sized cat. <laughs> and that, that scared me because that was, yeah, like one hell of a big rat. Um, it was nothing to do with anything, but it just, you know, it was part of what hung around there in the markets at that time. And very quickly I realised that um, when the greengrocers went back to their shop with their ute full of all sorts of produce, well, they had to get rid of their old produce. So I quickly picked up the habit of wandering around to the local greengrocers in Glebe with my wheelbarrow and then just saying, oh, you want that one? You want that box of fruit? Yeah, take it. Yeah, it doesn't matter. They're going to throw it out anyway. And so I'd take this box of fruit and veg and boxes for free and do a few loads and 90 or 95% I'd just throw straight into the compost. I'd mush it up with a knife a bit to make it recycle faster, but I'd put it into the compost. But 5 to 10% was just fantastic. And I got all this fruit and veg for free. Oh, my God, for, for five, ten years. It was fantastic. And, the, and compost as well. What did you cook with? What did you cook with these, this fruit and veg? I just steamed it. Steamed. 
No, it was very simple. Um, quite unlike um, modern recipes where you add a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of my most sophisticated stuff was to add garlic and a few herbs. That was about it. So and and onions, frying onions. I was good at that and fried rice. But uh, basically, it was steamed soybeans with steamed vegetables, and then you get a bit of calcium going. And I liked having a drink with it anyway. I'd get powdered skim milk because it was very cheap. And I'd buy that in Chinatown in a ten kilo bin, um, and then add a bit of Milo to give it flavour. And all I had to do to add to it was water. I had a little gas stove, a two burner gas stove, a camping stove, and that's how I uh, survived for about eight years or so while I was living in the squats. Did it become like a, a, a game and a thrill to be able to achieve this sort of diet and sort of go and t- market your food and collect it? Um, it was, for me, just part of normal living. It was a way that I could eat well and get full nutrition and have a well-balanced diet. As, bearing in mind, I did not know any dietetics. I hadn't done a course. And I was just going by some of the hippie books and I uh, and there was a lot of ignorance back then about what con- you know, constituted good food. I've kind of fallen in love with one mantra of Michael Pollan, which is eat food, comma, mostly plants, comma, not too much. But I didn't know it back then, but I was living that mantra back then. And so when you would go home to mum, would she la- load you up and dad, would they load you up with food? And Ah. What, oh, right, heaven. Heaven, yeah, be- beautiful. Um Kapusta and guambak and pierogi, all sorts of fancy foods, only once a week. Um, and then also uh, kutya, sort of a cracked wheat-based breakfast cereal. What did they make of your diet in the squat? What did they make of you living in the squat? They thought it was a bad thing and slightly dangerous. Uh, and in retrospect, there was some wisdom to what they thought. It was kind of a little bit foolish of me. But your ignorance around that sort of kept you there for eight years, kept you going and moving. Yeah. Well, it made it possible for me to do what I wanted and not worry about the fact that I had no money. So when I was studying for my master's degree in biomedical engineering, I had no income because I saw being a student as a full-time job. And so I was able to be a student and do nothing else and therefore able to get good marks. Uh, Back then, the Australian government saw education as a worthwhile investment in the future. They no longer do that. What did your your friends make of your life in the squat? Um, Well, it was handy. I didn't have to pay any rent. (laughs) I do remember one day, um, you see, what I'd done was um, the way I got electricity was I put on some rubber gloves and then went to the um, power board and just bypassed the meter and read, ran the electricity straight from the power pole into my house. And I remember one day I was just out in the street doing some oil, an oil change on my car and the, um, I saw the electrical people walk past and they just looked at my, the wiring, they just shook their head and just walked straight past it. <laughs> and at one stage I did try to formalise my relationship in that house, which was owned by the Department of Main Roads, who had deliberately left it empty and hoped that it would drop down the prices in nearby houses. And I wrote a letter to them saying, oh, look, I've been living here, squatting, uh, this is the address, 78 Dargan Street, I'd like to pay some rent, uh, formalise a relationship, um, yours truly, Carl. And they sent a letter back to me fairly promptly saying, oh, this is to uh, acknowledge 
that we have uh, sent you, we've received your letter and shortly we'll give you a formal reply. And then they sent me a second letter which said this is to follow up on the first letter that we just sent you. <laughs> that was it. And that and, was it. And they didn't go any further than that. They didn't want to formalise my existence there or boot me out. They were just doing nothing and just letting it continue. Let's talk about your taxi driving. So I use my conversation with taxi and rideshare drivers as a bit of a barometer of what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. Dr. Carl, if I got you as a, as a driver, I would actually change my route from Surrey Hills to Cape Tribulation because I'd want more of that information. How did you get to driving cabs? Um, I failed the taxi test a couple of times until I finally learned the different suburbs of Sydney and I needed income and it was easy to drive taxi. So I figured I'd do it. Um, and it was uh, a line of work where I could pick and choose my own shifts whenever I wanted them, bearing in mind that the boss might not want to give me uh, a taxi. And, and, and there was one night that I smashed up six cars and the boss was a bit mean about giving me taxis for a while. And where was the base? Uh, the base was in Favot Street. Oh, going down the hill. Going down the hill on the left-hand side, Legion Cabs. Wow, wow, wow. And how long did you drive taxis for, did you say? Uh, about five years, 400,000 kilometres. Do you remember um, whatever that – because I do remember in that, that cab depot in the Legion cab there was a meal room or a, a place where men, the drivers, went to eat. Do you remember seeing any of what they brought to the meal rooms? Uh, no, I would eat on the road. Right. So basically I was there to earn as much money as possible. So I'd start early, finish late and just get a quick meal upon the road. And I'd, work, I'd eat at different places around Sydney – I remember eating at this place called McDonald's when it opened, the first McDonald's in Australia. And I remember eating it and thinking, this is not like a hamburger I like. It was incredibly soft and sweet. Um, what were the type of hamburgers that you'd like to eat? So I wanted some bread. I wanted a little bit of butter, but not much. I wanted um, a thin bit of steak, um, lightly uh, fried, uh, and a lot of salad and a lot of beetroot. Were you the, the customer leaning over the counter explaining specifically how you wanted your steak sandwich cooked? Only the first couple of times uh, because we were regulars. And so, and at that time of the day, there weren't much, many people coming through. And so the people in the bar would uh, give us what we wanted. There was also a Henry's High Boys, I remember in Bronte, and they had a nice sort of hamburger. Um, and, you know, there were a few other different food places around Sydney that I sort of tended to frequent. And, and, and frequenting, uh, being a taxi driver and frequenting a lot of these places as a taxi driver, you would have come across a lot of Sydney haunts that are still around the, to this day, which brings me to your third food memory, Abdul's Lebanese Restaurant in Sydney. Yeah, on the corner of Cleveland and Elizabeth Street on the um, uh, southwest corner. And it was great. Uh, I had this weird experience uh, recently where my daughter was having a birthday and she really wanted to eat at this specific place. And so we, we booked a table for a certain number of people there. And it was kind of weird because it was $80 a head for the meal and you had to pay in advance. But if you didn't turn up, they'd charge your credit card for $100 per place. The extra $20 being? I don't know. Just just a total pretentious rip-off. And then it was sort of all um, 
flowery and no substance. Um, and we, we said, oh, look, there's a bunch of us here. Can we um, – I see you've got a private room there. Can we hire the private room? And they said, yeah, that'll be an extra $1,000. Oh, no way. Whereas at um, Abdul's, mate, it's, it is what it is and it's honest and it's really nice. It's fresh. It's high turnover. And the people have been the same people there in the same family for about 40 years and they keep on growing up and I know them and they know me. And it's just really straightforward, simple Lebanese food like the tabbouleh. Oh, my God. It's tabbouleh from heaven, you know, all that chopped up green stuff. Oh, my God. I could eat a cubic metre of the stuff It's that good. <laughs> and then chuck on a bit of hummus and baba ganoush and the ladies' fingers man, you're, and, 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 and the um, baked cauliflower. Oh, it's just gorgeous. And the Turkish coffee at the end. Mate, it's just all gorgeous. The um the baba ganoush is actually pro- the, probably the most famous one in Sydney. It's very really? smoky. Yes, yes, yes. It's people actually literally they queue up. I just I live around the corner from there, so you see people there coming oh. out all the time with the foil container and the lid. In fact, I go there to get my bab. I walk to get there to get my baba ganoush, and then I pass the Turkish place further up to get the bread. And so by the time ah. I've taken it home, there's no bread. And half the bubble gunners so because I've eaten it all the way. It really is a special restaurant. Um, so the so what what were some of the first dishes you had at Abdul's that stick? Um, the Turkish coffee. So um, I do remember uh, as a cab driver, one of the problems was um, falling asleep, and uh, so I have one terrible memory where. I was in King's Cross on the long queue of taxis and King's Cross because it was the only place there was work and Tuesday night's the worst night of the week and it was winter and it was a bit cold. And I remember being in the queue of taxis, maybe 15 from the front and then my next memory is that I'm driving on Canterbury Road and I don't have any other memories in between and I've got no memory of anything. Now, when I was a cab driver, I decided fairly on um, that I would be a fully professional cab driver and I would always follow all the rules because I figured rather than make a conscious decision whether I'd put a blinker on or not, whether I'd change lanes, I'd always put a blinker on. I'd always stop at a red light. I'd always give way to people. I'd always stop at a pedestrian crossing every single time. And so those reflexes saved me uh, in that drive from King's Cross heading towards Canterbury, and I said to the patient, oh, uh, what was the name of the street you want to go to, mate? He said, oh, Renown Street. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, no worries, mate. Um, and he didn't look panicked, and I kept on looking at him out of the corner of my eye and kept on driving, and um, I figured I must have been driving okay on reflexes while totally asleep, which is so dangerous. So one of the important things about Abdul's was the coffee. <laughs> Dr. Cobb, before we finish... Will you share with us a social issue close to your heart? Oh, education. Um, Education is such an important thing. And yet in Australia, we no longer see education as a worthwhile investment in the future. We've shifted into a situation where the private companies that happen to run the private schools, in other words, the private companies that have decided to have this thing called education as their product, for each student... The federal government gives them $10,500 a year. A year. But for government schools, the federal government gives only 3500 Why is the federal government 
in the business of subsidising these private companies that happen to sell education as a product. That's a very wrong situation. And secondly, Australia's got the highest penetration of private schooling anywhere. And so what I've done about it is I go to schools all the time. I send books to the schools, especially Indigenous schools. Um, over the years, I've sent maybe four tonnes of books and magazines and new scientist magazines out. And every Wednesday afternoon, I do two free science question and answer sessions with schools around Australia and in the world. Go to my homepage, drkarl.com, D-R-K-A-R-L.com. And at the rate I'm going through, I should get through every school in Australia in a century. Now, it's not much, but it's something that I'm doing. And I'm also training and mentoring people to go along that pathway as well. So uh, just recently, we found ourselves in the situation where a report came out that in three years' time, the New South Wales, the state of New South Wales will have a shortfall of one-third of a million workers with the appropriate education. So we're going to have to import plumbers, carpenters, bus drivers, scientists, engineers. Isn't it possible that we could just simply educate them in Australia? wouldn't that make sense? And the other thing is with all the engineers and so forth that are, that are coming out, I've spoken to so many that are driving taxis and Ubers or there was one really smart person who's designing a motocross track in the mountains of Tasmania. And we've got all of these wonderfully trained people um, that they can't get jobs and then there's all these jobs that we can't fill um, because the, in some cases, the well, there's, there's a whole mixture of reasons. But so something that I'm passionate about as a way of making a better future for Australia, education. Yes, that's my big deal. What advice do you have for parents like me or and carers when it comes to their children's education? How do you think we can manage it and move it forward? Um, you've got to do it from the highest level. We've got to get rid of the situation where we give three times as much money to private schools as to government schools. We've got to stop that politically. So now we've got to start leaning on the politicians to change it or become politicians ourselves. I ran for politics in the Federal Senate, Federal Senate in 2007 and failed. Do you think you would have enjoyed it as much as you enjoy what you do now? Oh, God, yes, in the sense that I could be doing more for Australia. So in the Federal Senate, there's only you know, fewer than 100 people. And I could have been one of those people voting on issues. And I've been pushing very hard for education. Dr. Carr, would you run for Senate again? Um, on one hand, my wife would threaten to divorce me. But if she didn't, I'd be one way to do good for the future. Because there is a very small number of people in the Senate. And I'd like to get in. But there's a whole big bunch of powerful machinery trying to stop the independence. On the other hand, the Teals did okay. Dr. Carl. Thank you so much. You dispel the idea that not one should never meet their hero. And before we really do finish, I'd love it if you'd finish with your famous sign-off. Peace, love and mung beans, Dr. Savas. Dr. Carl, thank you so much. My pleasure. That's it for this episode of Plated Three Food Memories. Remember, you can find out everything that Dr. Carl is up to at drcarl.com. In the next episode of Plated, joining me from London, is the tenacious beauty Natalie Imbruglia. 
Plated Through Food Memories is made in partnership with World Stories, produced and edited by Lauren McQuirter, an original score by Russell Torrance. Make sure you keep an eye on the World Stories and Plated Insta accounts to keep up to date with everything Three Food Memories. Just search Plated by Sava, that's Sava with a double V, and World Stories, W-E-L-D Stories. And we'd love it if you could spread the Plated podcast joy, tell your mates, leave us a review, and follow for more. Bye for now, and Galisas Meta.